Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. Welcome to this episode of the Catalyst Podcast, another in the mini-series of Successful Functional and Integrative Practices. Today, you're going to meet Dr. Jordan Robertson. She's a naturopathic doctor who is relentless in her pursuit for better patient care, better practitioner support, and more collaborative care in medicine in general. She is the founder of Clarity Health, a massive naturopathic clinic in Ontario that has served over 20,000 patients. She's also a podcast host and has ambitions of making accurate women's health information accessible to all. She is also a teacher at the McMaster Hospital and instructor for the Undergraduate Health Sciences Program and the founder of The Confident Clinician. The Confident Clinician is a practice resource and database for naturopathic doctors to help elevate their professional practice by offering clinical practice guidelines, patient resources, and ongoing training for naturopathic doctors. She is changing the way naturopathic doctors practice and integrate in medicine with the Confident Clinician currently supporting over 600 NDs in North America and worldwide. She could see all of the problems in her industry that were holding practitioners back and built the program to solve them. In this episode, you're going to learn three common mistakes that Dr. Jordan thinks will make your functional or integrative practice take a nosedive. Individualized care, you'll learn why we don't like that term. You're going to learn about SOPs and also about hiring. Then we'll pivot and you'll hear three of her must-haves for a successful functional medicine clinic being a framework, and confidence as well as team building. You'll understand the nuances of each as we unpack them. And she is a great critical thinker and question asker. So stay tuned to the end because she's going to give us her best top two questions that she loves to ask her patients. Enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Jordan Robertson. Welcome to this episode of the Catalyst Podcast. I am so thrilled to have a wonderful colleague, Dr. Jordan Robertson here. I met her at Megan Walker's Impact Live events last November, and she's been on my radar as one of the people I wanted to get in this seat and have an awesome conversation with, especially in the mini series around successful, functional, integrative, holistic medical practice. This is Jordan's whole niche. I mean, she's helped thousands of patients, but also helped other practitioners really learn the the deep dive on what's needed to impact lives beyond their exam room. So welcome, Jordan. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to dive right in. So let's start. You are a naturopathic doctor. Give us a little backstory of your journey on, on what, you know, really catalyzed your place in the world today. Yeah. So I graduated about 15 years ago as a naturopathic doctor. And I will say that my prior training before becoming an ND is totally relevant. I went to school 
for uh, critical appraisal or the reading of medical research. But I was fortunate to go to McMaster University's problem-based learning health sciences program. So not only did we learn critical appraisal and good question asking, but it was embedded in personal development, communication, conflict resolution, group process. So I graduated with this incredible skill set that then I took to the naturopathic college and when I was finished there, um, started my practice really by myself. I, I really felt like that was where I wanted to have my impact. And it wasn't until maybe a year or two later that I realized that I had these skills of research reading, pulling together protocols, communicating with other medical professionals. I was landing gigs at the hospital. I was teaching for the medical school. I had developed courses for the university. And it took me a couple of years to realize that not everyone was practicing that way. And only when I would be met with colleagues asking, like, how did you get that position? Or how did you know all of that? That I realized that I had been given this gift of graduating with this skill set that was not embedded in naturopathic education. So clinicians were leaving, like clinging to their notes, right, from their courses and that was the best they had to work with. And many years later, after graduating, we're still referring back to what their elders had said or what their profs had said five, six, seven years ago. And I realized that we needed a better support system for clinicians in their day-to-day -day practice to stay up to date without feeling like they were always referencing conventional medical standards. Because as you and I both know, when you log into those conventional databases, we're a whisper in the footnotes, right, about what's yep. possible as far as prevention and integrative options. When there are so many conditions where we deserve an entire chapter on what is possible for our patients. And that was when I really embarked on this newest chapter of my career, which was developing the confident clinician, where we do the research for clinicians to help them stay up to date in their practice and hand them the protocols they need to feel confident with what they're doing. And then they get to just be present with their patient without feeling like they're, you know, having to scramble, looking up research in between every patient or relying on supplement companies to stay up to date, which let's be honest, that's how many of us were staying up to date. So that's kind of where what got me to this point was I had this great training, great, unique experiences. Um, but I really recognized this problem in the profession that everyone was kind of dying in between their patient appointments, trying to figure out how to stay current. I love this. And that's so important because you're you're highlighting something we talk about often on this podcast, which is knowledge and information does not equal transformation. We have to learn to apply what we know. And I love that you're addressing this need and asking great questions. And, you know, the the idea that you said a whisper in the footnotes, I think is so true that the the more that we're in this career, the more we realize that our current standards of reporting what is effective in medical care is so skewed. It depends on who funded the study or, you know, what are some of these critical thinking skills that we have to deploy in order to find these protocols and how awesome that your company will do that for the clinician so we can just show up and be present as our own self-expressive practitioner wanting to run our clinic. Um, so tell me, what do you think is necessary when people are looking to practice functional, integrative, or naturopathic medicine? Let's talk first, some of the mistakes that you think are made, and then we'll circle back into things that you think are needed for a really effective clinic. So let's talk about some common mistakes you might see. 
I think that, I mean, there's a couple of things. Like one, I think that, you know, we, we talk a lot about individualized medicine in integrative medicine, right? And, and I think that was born out of the fact that many patients don't feel heard. Um, you know, people feel like they're not getting enough out of their seven minute health appointment. And here comes integrative medicine to save the day. We're going to spend time with patients. We're going to deeply understand them as individuals. But unfortunately, we've taken that term and we've maybe misapplied it slightly to say that every patient with asthma deserves a different protocol when that's not really what the evidence suggests. The evidence suggests that patients with asthma, there's probably five or six things that all of them deserve to learn about and have a choice for with respect to their care. And really what is individualized about their care is how we present it how we help them strategize to overcome their barriers in their own health journey, the order that we share some of those strategies in, that's really where we're individualizing care. We're not saying, well, John who has asthma gets X protocol and Wendy who has asthma, she she needs something completely different. So this lack of, I'm going to use the word standard of care, which I know in integrative medicine, we immediately get our, you know, uh, spidey senses up when we say that word, is that that's taking away from what we do. But I completely disagree. When we don't practice that way, what does that mean? It means that we're expecting a practitioner to have three hours of unpaid labor in between every patient because you have to find the reason that John has asthma and the reason yes. that has asthma when the research is right there for what you should do for them, actually. And I think that that is a big mistake that we're leaving school believing that, you know, practitioners responsibility to go to the ends of the earth for each individual patient when we have tried and true and evidence-based solutions right in front of us for what we should be doing. And so we see these young and budding practitioners saying, I don't have time to market my practice, Jordan, right? Like, that's a great example. I don't have time to do that. I'm like, well, why not? Because if I just handed you the evidence on asthma, then you can get on TikTok, actually. Like, you've got the time to grow your business because you're not focusing on writing a 27-page treatment plan for each of your patients. I, okay, let's pause. This is like a big, seriously, we could talk about this for four hours. You've hit the, the sweet spot that I love, love, love talking about, which is, and, and even efficiency sounds really corporate and cliche, but really you're hitting the spot that I, I've always, and you said it so eloquently, um, just that when we're taught personalized, individualized medicine does not mean personalized, individualized care on every single patient with unique you know, assessment and plans and that we have to reinvent the wheel. And I feel like every practitioner gets that hidden subliminal message when they graduate. Like, okay, I'm in the business of individualized care, which means, oh no, what if Mr. Jones and Miss Thompson compare their assessment and plans and they're kind of almost identical? Like, uh oh, no, nobody's going to be blasting you from the sky. In fact, you're more effective as a clinician if you have your standard of care that you know you deliver really well. And like you said, you leave the individualization up to the strategy, the order. How do, does that patient want to start or down those steps? I love that you have you know, really highlighted this, that it's all about applying what we know, not really getting more knowledge. Um, it's fantastic. And what I love is Many practitioners will say it's too easy. What if I'm done charting? I, I must ha- have more. I need I need to add more in there, right? You know, oh no, it can't be that easy. Like, 
yeah, it, it can. I mean, you can have 80% of your chart being very standardized and then you you fill in the blanks. I love this. What other mistakes do you see commonly in practitioners? Um, I think like you mentioned there, that sort of like that standard of um, standard operating procedures, right, is often missing in the way that people approach any challenge or any problem in setting up their clinical practice. And for me, I'm a huge SOP person, right? If I've done something if I'm about to do something for the second time, I'm like, okay, this needs a standard operating procedure, right? Because we should be relying on the repetition in the certain aspects of our work that we can. And I would say that third mistake that really ends up being this limiter is to not hire early enough in their career. And so, for example, we tend to carry around tasks that either we're not good at, is not our zone of genius, are not billable hours. And I'm going to include research in that, right? I truly believe that if you're slow, if you don't like it, and if you don't know if you know, figured out the answer after reading five PubMed articles, that's the same as hiring someone to answer the phone, in my opinion. And so hiring out to support your weaknesses so you can continue to focus on strengthening your strengths is an incredibly important step that I think takes that mindset for clinicians, one, to invest in themselves, which I get is hard after you've just spent a billion dollars on school. However, we need to get you into that state of like highest number of billable hours, seeing patients as many hours as possible. That's not possible if you take your laptop home and then have an additional 10 hours of work whether it's administrative or research, both of those things should not be on your to-do list. Absolutely, period. I couldn't have said it better. That is absolutely true. And I think we suffer as practitioners from you know the curse of knowing too much. We think, oh, well, we're obviously high achievers. Many of us have gone through years of training and have proven that we're smart, we're capable, we can do a lot of things. So that tends to trickle down into, well, that's an easy task. I could write some quick copy or I, I could design this, this contract or I, you know, I could maybe do all of my blogging or my newsletters. I mean, sure, you could, but should you, you know, and that's the question, you know, yes, you could do it all. You're trained to do it all, but really that's not the highest level of your training. And we need to stick into that zone of, of genius, as you said. I love these three these three common mistakes are are permeating so many practices. So let's flip and let's go to what do you think needs to be in place in successful functional medicine practices? Yeah, I think having a framework for how you work with patients is incredibly important. And so regardless of that core niche that you work with, my guess is, is that you can map out a 12-month to 24-month plan for your patients. Whether you have a cash practice or a membership-based practice, you are moving them through some kind of process in working with you. And when you really nail that down, it helps decrease the attrition in your practice. And that is one of the most important things to catapult to practice forward. We all love new patients, but the depth of patients in your practice really comes from those people that are sticking with you and know what they're doing with you month over month and year over year. In my last couple of years of practice, I've taken almost zero new patients and yet had a full roster. And it's because nobody ever left and they didn't leave because they knew that we were on some kind of journey together. They knew when to come back. They knew what our 12-month goals were. So I think that that can really help build this successful practice is for people to understand those touch points really well, to understand the value they get from connecting with you. And you can be really clear about that. 
when I see you next, you're going to have X and X problem. We're going to troubleshoot that together, actually. Like, this is what the value is of us working together is strategy, not just how many milligrams of fish oil to take per day. And helping them map out what their journey looks like if they continue working with you. I think that is an incredibly important piece and one that's often missed that we're not inserting ourselves into our patients' lives years down the road so that they visualize what our role is actually going to be with them, with their conventional doctors and all of that. Beautiful. I love that you talk about framework and process. And you're right. That is, in my opinion, the number one thing that people overlook because it causes anxiety. When they're looking at their process, they're going, well, I can't predict that all my patients are going to go through the same process. We're not saying that they're all going to go through the same steps. We're saying that if you can formulate kind of like a roadmap of expectations, patients feel not only safer, they know what to expect, they feel taken care of. And like you had said, you know, these touch points bring value and you're building your own culture. So you're doing two things at once. Not only are you easing patients' anxiety, wondering what am I, what am I looking towards? Like what is going to happen? But you're also building this culture of look at all the things I can help you with. And yes, it's not a sup for what's up, a pill for an ill. It's a lot of the magic and the treatment can come in that one-to-one or one-to-many group structure of how can I hold you accountable? How can I help you make these changes that is easier because we're working together and co-partnering? Beautiful. I love that. Hey, have you visited the Catalyst Way yet? It's an online hub designed just for you, where we spark your creativity, passion, and flow to build your own self-expressive medical career. There's so much to explore inside the Catalyst Way. If you're a functional medicine practitioner, check out our Catalyst Studio Mentorship, your gateway to membership micropractice, with everything you need to grow and scale your functional medicine business, including private mentor sessions, masterminds, access to quarterly legal lounges, and much more. Or peek inside the world's first digital subscription delivery box service that delivers monthly content to make your functional medicine clinic run effortlessly, including customizable infographics, SOPs, templates, and hand-selected mastermind recordings. Or maybe you just want some entertaining and useful CME. You'll find that at the Catalyst Reclamation CME online course. You'll learn neuroscience behind burnout, embrace flow, master your calendar, fortify boundaries, and transform your burnout into boundless energy and joy using our three-step AHA method. It's approved for 10 hours of AMA Category 1 CME. Use the code PODCAST for 10% off. And because I'm a practical mom of three, guess what? The Catalyst Way also has tons of freebie content too. My favorite is the Catalyst Compass Quiz, which matches you to an ideal jumpstart strategy to find your spark. But I also love the free Catalyst Calendar Time Management System and Functional Micropractice Checklist. It's all here at the Catalyst Way. Visit drlarasalier.com forward slash catalyst to start coloring outside the lines. We're creating empowered, self-expressive clinicians as catalysts who lead healthcare transformation. Are you a catalyst? Visit drlarasalier.com forward slash catalyst now. What's something else that you think should be in place? I mean, I think having a lot of confidence about what your lane is really also helps exude confidence and uh, commitment with your patients. And so I think one of the challenges we face in integrative medicine is that we are kind of taught to be a jack of all trades. And we also have this uh, scarcity mindset that if we can't support our patient, that someone else will. 
And what that means is we're often working with patients on things that are not our zone of genius. And when that happens, I mean, I think two things happen. One, it's really hard to talk confidently about everything. And so even your presentation to a patient starts to pale, maybe in comparison to the things that you do know really well, Um, but also their outcomes are not as good, right? So I think it's an incredibly important piece. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of collaborative care with conventional medicine. There are thousands and thousands of things that I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole clinically. And I've drawn that line in the sand so hard but my patients still respect everything I do have to offer. And I think when we have that level of confidence to say, yeah, you need an antibiotic, right? Or yeah, that's not in my scope of practice. I need yes. you to defer to so-and-so. But that actually builds your practice. It doesn't decay it. And those patients actually start to see you as a trustworthy person on their team not someone who's going to try and throw a herb at any given symptom that they have. So, I mean, truly, it kind of depends on what role you want to play in the healthcare team. But for me, I always wanted to be this like absolute expert at the areas that I excelled in, but be part of an integrative medicine model where their physicians respected me, I respected them, and we were all on the same team. And I think that that can actually help people grow their practice by having that firm boundary on what they do and don't support. And it's funny because then people will say, well, Jordan, the confident clinician gives people, you know, information on all areas. Like you want us to be confident in all areas. And that's true. Like I do want you to feel supported and have resources at your disposal for UTIs or for other conditions that maybe aren't your niche. But that's only as a confidence builder so that you know where that line in the sand is. And I think that that's an incredibly important piece that can help you grow your practice by by being more collaborative with the other professionals in your community. Absolutely. You're highlighting one of another, a big thing that I love talking about, which is boundaries. So in in a roundabout way, you're saying the more you say no, or it's not my zone of genius, the stronger your confidence raises up and the more respect from your patients. And I couldn't agree more. It goes to every um, relationship or, or even business transaction. The more we can fortify our boundaries and know how can we show up best with our energy? Like what kind of recipe do we need for our own personal energy? energy success. And if 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 that if the time that you're spending like learning about something that's just not of interest to you, you know, it's really draining that energy. So the more that you can shore that up and know with clarity, nope, that's just not in my lane. That's not in my scope. And you know, I really think it's time for you to go here. It is so magical, right? Cuz patients are like, "Whoa." They don't expect you to say, mm, I don't think you need me. I think you need to go here." Or this is not something I like to investigate or it's not my zone of genius. It's so magical, really. I mean, I can't even tell you. It's it's also contagious. I really feel that practitioners, when they see others inside, you know, a mentorship or a an accountability group, when you see others learning to build the boundaries, because let's be honest, we're we're all people pleasers. We're in a service industry. We want our patients to like us and to do better and to feel better. And that can go awry really fast because as recovering people pleasers, we deserve to have our own energy and our own anti-burnout life. And so when you see other practitioners building their boundaries and creating that culture in their clinic or their practice, it's so contagious. You see that it's possible and you actually get more confident when you do that. So I love that you highlighted on that area. What's another thing? What's one last thing that you think should be in place? 
Hmm. I mean, I think having a, a team is really critical um, to your success as a clinician. And that could be team, I'm going to say team slash community. Okay. So I think, you know, depending on what your framework and structure is for your practice, you may get that at work every day because you have other clinicians in the space that you work in, or you may have that through the team that's supporting you because of the structure that you have in your practice. But you also may need to seek that out in um, some kind of mentorship and leadership group that is able to give you the kind of like reflection back that you want to see so that you can keep aspiring to being better and better. Um, it's hard when you're working alone every day, right, by yourself and that you're like the, the center of your patient's universe. And yet you don't, you don't have that person to like reflect back on like, what does good communication look like here, Jordan? What is good? What does leadership look like here, Jordan? We can actually grow as an entire group of individuals if we put ourselves in the room with other really high functioning people. And I think that that's something that's really missing in a lot of clinicians lives is that they're doing what I did at the beginning of my career, which was I shut the door. I worked by myself. I didn't tell a soul what I was doing. And truly, I do think that that's a little bit of the culture. And if we look to some of the generations gone past, they'll hold their protocols close to their chest and they won't tell you their secret sauce for how they treat fibromyalgia. That's not for you to know. You're young and new. I think that there's a better way forward. And I think leadership in our profession actually looks like community. It actually looks like circles of clinicians who are willing to be vulnerable, to talk about what they're doing, to share with each other and to like pull each other up. So I think that that's something that can really make a big difference. And a lot of those groups can feel like a really high ticket or a big investment for people. But, you know, I, I think most people's million dollar idea is sitting in a circle of other clinicians or other people that are in the same space as them. And you need to buy your way into a lot of those groups to even have that opportunity for someone to show you what your own potential is. So that's the thing I think I would have done earlier in my career is get more connected to other high-powered clinicians who were mirroring where I wanted to be. And we say the people that you're watching that are doing things you want to do have made that investment that you're afraid to make. And so whatever, whoever it is you see on social media or whatnot, and you're like, man, I wish I could do what they were doing like 10 out of 10 times that that person has invested in some kind of personal development or mentorship. Um, and brought, and that success for you is on the other side of that investment. Absolutely. No doubt. And that's something that can't be emphasized more. In conventional medicine, we used to have something called doctor's lounges where people could collaborate, talk over cases, and those are disappearing because new hospitals are being built without doctor's lounges. We're all becoming siloed. And like you mentioned, going alone, white knuckling it, you know, and even in your own business, if you're a naturopathic or functional medicine, you think, uh oh, well, I really can't, you know, reach out and show people that I don't know what I'm doing because, you know, heaven forbid, but we're all at the cutting edge of healthcare transformation. We're all in this revolution together. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you've got to find a new room. You've got to find people that you both admire and, and you aspire to be. And, and that's the quickest way to find your core values is think of somebody you really admire and aspire. And what are those characteristics? Find a tribe, find a team, Try find people that you can be with in that room. And I love that. I mean, Teamwork is so important. And I think a lot of us have a hard time unclenching the control that we want to have over every little bit of our clinic. But the more you learn to let go and trust and 
and be able to mirror that energy from other people, success is right behind it. I think this is super cool. So I have another question and then we'll conclude, but I'm curious, you um, talk about critical thinking and with your experience going into naturopathic school as a critical thinker, as somebody who can analyze data, as somebody who asks good questions, what does critical thinking in the context of integrative, functional, holistic medicine, what does that mean to you? Ooh, that, as you were formulating that question, I was like, ooh, this one feels scary. <laughs> <laughs> There's no scare here. This is all good. Norepinephrine is all for excitement, <laughs> not for fear. <laughs> <laughs> what does critical thinking? Well, it's a tough one because I think there's been so much like in, deeply embedded in our education model that was not particularly inviting for changing our minds. And even if we think about how we've shared information in our profession historically, right? It's been a lot of oral tradition. It's been a lot of, you know, the, I always say the oldest person in the room, which I don't mean, but when I was a naturopathic student, I actually went when I was very young to naturopathic college. And so the age discrepancy for me was big because I was always patted on the head saying, you're too young to really know what this should look like, Jordan. Even though I had come from this problem-based learning environment, I knew I was going to go back and develop courses for McMaster, which I did the moment I graduated. I became faculty at the university. But my entire experience when I was in school was patted on the head. You're too young to really know what the real world is like. And it's so interesting because now when we look at like at what makes great clinicians and what makes good education models in medicine, it's the complete opposite of the way that many of us were trained, where the, I'm going to say elders in quote, air quotes, knew all the secrets and you're going to try your hardest over those four years, but you're actually never going to be as good as them. And when you graduate, they are going to be this like, you know, North star that you're going to work towards and you're not going to be as good as them ever in your career. Like that's actually asked backwards because the clinicians that are coming up right now, they have access to more information than we ever did. They are smarter than we ever were. They are faster than we ever were. They're going to have opportunities we never had. And if we don't change our model of education to say, you guys are going to be better than me any minute, I'm going to be a facilitator as a springboard to help you get there, that we're not really going to get where we want to go in our profession at all. If we have this idea that the secrets are locked up in a cave somewhere and you know, you'll know you be lucky if someone shares them with you, that's really never going to get any of us to where we want to go. So I think when I start thinking about critical thinking and critical appraisal, I go right back to that education model where we need to value the clinicians that are coming out and recognize that they are the best we've got, even if it's day one of their graduation. And it's really our responsibility as people in the profession to help get them there and help support them. So when we start to challenge that, it really challenges the things that we think we know, right? And it really starts to value changing our mind. And really, that's what critical appraisal in science is all about. It's, it's we never know the answer, we're moving towards the answer. But that also assumes that we're willing to change our mind. And I'd love to think that if a study came out next week that said fish oil was killing people, I'd stop using it. And, but yet, right, there's there's so much resistance to change in our profession, and we're not really willing to roll with the evidence, even when something comes out that something we've done for years doesn't work. Or maybe it doesn't work the way we thought it did, right? We're, we're not that willing to change, and yet we absolutely expect that from our colleagues in conventional care. 
And so for me, critical thinking is really about having the mindset that we're open to change as new information gets in front of you. And I think that really starts in the schools, but also with us as leaders in the profession, we need to be willing to not be the smartest one in the room. I'm going to pick on your your term there because the the people that are graduating right behind us are going to beat us, right? And so we just need we need to do it together as a group because if we can propel them forward, that it's like, you know, it's limitless what we're going to achieve. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better, Jordan. This is amazing. Dr. Jordan, we're so lucky to have you in this pivotal time of healthcare change. And I agree with all of your points. I mean, teamwork, uh, makes us go further, faster, stronger, um, getting out from behind our ego, you know, and I being a DO in osteopathic school, I, I'm laughing as you're talking about the stories of these ancient wise elders, because we had the same thing, they would touch your toe and, and manipulate and they were amazing. They would say, Oh, your parents got divorced when you were four. And you're like, how did you know? Now, you know, manipulative medicine is amazing. And obviously very very wise and years of skills, but there was that little aura of, oh, it's untouchable. I'll never get there. And and that's disempowering when you're shouldering all these loans, you've spent all this time training and you have somebody in your room saying, oh, well, you know, I have everything that you need to know, but it's going to take decades. We need to be there for each other, supporting clinicians and just the future of healthcare change, especially with critical thinking and asking good questions. So one final question before we close. What would be an example of a good question? Do you have a favorite question that you'd like to ask on your patient intake? One that seems to get you the most information. If you were to distill it down to only one question you could ask, what do you think it would be? If I was going to ask a patient? Yeah. um, I have two. Well, so I have two, (laughs) which I know is not the rules, but I'm not. I'll allow you. I'll allow you. Follower. So one question I always ask patients, because I do think it helps us get to the core value of why they want to change is how would you know if you were better? So for me, they, you know, they tell you all their symptoms, they tell you all the things, but the, how would you know if you were better helps get into the core of like what their true values are. And when we get lost along the way, it's always helpful to be able to come back to that core value of you said you would know you were better if you could X, Y, and Z. Right. So that's one. And then my other question that I'm famous for asking my patients that they all roll their eyes at. (laughs) is once we've started working together, I will always ask them what needs to happen next. Because quite often the patient does know what the next step is or what the next practical, logical, possible step is for them. And even when we look at models of um, uh, motivational interviewing and some of the things that we know that actually help with behavior change the most, it actually comes from that intrinsic idea inside the patient, not what the practitioner thinks the next move actually is. So that is my, and my patients are like, oh, I knew you were going to ask me that, Jordan. Um, but when you ask your patient what needs to happen next, they often will offer you up exactly where you need to focus versus us coming in with our agenda and our ideas. And sometimes what they offer up is actually totally off what we had intended for them. And yet, when you think about it, actually is the very next thing that they need to do. Beautiful. Those are two of my favorites as well. You know, that self-determination theory of really leaning in on that. Patients know. Um, And and this kind of coaching modality works for so many things. I love that those are your favorite questions. Well said. Well, thank you again, Dr. Jordan. Um, For those listening, where can they find you? A pretty active Instagrammer. So it's uh, Dr. Jordan, like D-R-J-O-R-D-A-N-N-D on Instagram. And that's where you can find links to my podcast, 
We also have launched an integrative medicine magazine that's free for integrative medicine professionals called The Stacks. You can find the sign up for that there on Instagram as well, where we do like op-ed type articles. We give you the abstracts we loved this month, links to our uh, practitioner podcast and some free resources that are typically reserved for our members. We actually share in that magazine as well. So that would be the best place to find us. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for being a catalyst of change. And for those listening, make sure you like and subscribe. Forward this to a colleague who might need some advice on three things they could miss and three things they should include in successful functional medicine practices. And until next time, keep coloring outside the line and being a catalyst of healthcare transformation. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Catalyst Podcast. My vision is a world without burnout, and my mission is to teach 1 million medical professionals how to tap into creativity and flow to increase joy and well-being. We all deserve a medical career that is self-expressive, unique, and creative. You can help by signing up for my newsletters. One of my highest values is gratitude, so I love giving back. And each newsletter is gamified. The more you share, the more you win. It's easy to sign up. Just go to drlarasalier.com forward slash win. Thank you for coloring outside the lines with me.